You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You know, we sang, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to lead, leave this God I love. I don't know about you, but those lyrics from Come Thou Fount, um, <laughs> they register with me. Because <laughs> I know my heart, at least I try to know my heart. <laughs> I'm so prone to wander, prone to leave this God I love. And passages like this are in the Bible to address our heart. Because we are so prone to wander. down, it just kind of occurred to me when I was singing that song, like, could there be a better lyric to a song for us to sing before we get into a text where we should be warned, and we should heed the warning, and it is a tricky text, um, and I was, I, was trying to, I was trying to think about um, how we tend to wrestle with tricky texts, like, uh, this came to mind as I was preparing for this particular sermon, like, have you ever watched a movie, and you didn't quite understand it, um, at least the first time you watched it, or you thought you understood it, and then you watched it again, and you realized, like, you're, you're way off. Uh, this happened to me um, kind of recently with the Avengers Endgame. Well, stick with me. Um, watched it, went home, and was so confused about what happened. I'm not a moviegoer. I'm not a movie buff. But I was kind of drawn in with the crowd. I got to watch it. Everyone else has watched it. So I watched it. And I'm like, I don't get how the director pulled all this together into one coherent plot. I, I left, my, le- left the movie scratching. And I, many of you who are you know, more of a movie buff than me, you were like, how did you not get that? <laughs> like, well, I, I, just, I had a hard time. I was confused. I received more, more um, questions than I did answers to some of my questions. So after the movie came out on DVD, right, I watched it a second time, and I walked away with a completely different experience. What I, what I did the second time is I decided to pay attention to details. Not only understand the major themes that are, that are so obvious, but try to understand some of the themes that are below the obvious themes, what else is going on that I, didn't, that I didn't see the first time that I watched it? As a result, I, I actually walked away with a fresh perspective and appreciation of what the movie was trying to convey. In addition to all that, it's just, it can be helpful to evaluate a movie after you've watched it the first time. So I don't want to make this a sermon about my evaluation of Avengers Endgame. It's not where I'm going, but I use this as an example about how we read some passages in the Bible. Sometimes we first read a passage and it doesn't make sense. In our heads, we're like, what, what do I do with this? But then you come back to the passage a little later and then perhaps it begins to make sense. You're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't how many times have you done this? I didn't, I didn't catch that the first time. 
oh. If there's a story in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts, that causes a person to initially scratch their head, uh, it it is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Further, within the plot structure of Acts, it, it seems out of place. Like Up until the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we see the gospel advance as the word is preached. Like, good things are happening. God is building his church. Up to this point in Acts, we only see external resistance against the church. We see people trying to destroy the church, yes, but they're on the outside. They're on the outside. In Acts Acts 5, it's like this new twist to the plot. Where'd this come from? There is resistance against the church, but it's coming from the inside. And Satan is the chief culprit. Uh, John Stott, the late John Stott, summarizes this so well. It's not on the screen. I forgot to put it up there, but you can listen. The second and most cunning assault on the church was more corruption and compromise. Having failed to destroy the church from the outside, he attempted, he's talking about Satan, he attempted through Ananias and Sapphira to insinuate evil into its interior life. And so ruin, that's the goal of Satan, and so ruin Christian fellowship. Well-meaning Christians who know God is good can read this passage and walk away a bit puzzled. I know I have. What is going on here? Why did Ananias and Sapphira, who appear to be church members on some level, why did they have to die? Because they only gave 75 cents of the dollar of the profits from the property they sold. They only gave 75 cents of the dollar to the church. That's why they died. To our, to our sensibilities, like if we're being honest here, right? To our sensibilities, that doesn't make sense. The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. I do not say all this to cast doubt on God, but to acknowledge the challenge this passage presents to us when we read it at first blush. I mean, let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room when it comes to this particular passage. It can be difficult to understand. With this said, even though it's difficult, it's in God's word, and we should work toward understanding this difficult passage. Therefore, my, my goal this morning is to actually slow down as I, as I kind of try to connect to watching Avengers Endgame to take a second, third, and fourth look at this passage and see what God has. We want to understand this from not just a fresh perspective, but a biblical perspective. Perspective, and I, and I do hope that this helps you read your Bible when you encounter difficult passages. The story of Ananias and Sapphira invokes the question, why? Why? Right? Why do certain things happen that have no rational explanation, at least no rational explanation to us? Why do bad things happen to seemingly, seemingly good people? 
Why did that person have to die? Why did that person over there get to live? Why do we live in a world of pain, suffering, and death? So this, this question why kind of lingers in the back of our mind when we read this particular passage. And I'm going to say let it linger. Let it linger. Because I think we can learn from Ananias, Sapphira, and to contrast with them, which I haven't spoken about yet, but we'll get to this example of Barnabas. What we're going to see is that when we ask why, there is usually more going on than what we initially perceive. So it's a good question. Ask the question. The psalmist asked the question. But there is more going on. I think the first step to understand Acts 5, verses 1 to 11, that is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, is to realize it's connected to the latter part of Acts 4. Oftentimes, the latter part of Acts 4 is kind of like segmented off from Acts 5. I'm sure many of your Bible translations have done that. Um, These two passages surely can be preached separate, but I think they should be preached together. I'm going to submit to you, if you remove the chapters and verses from your Bible, the natural reading is to read the story about Barnabas in contrast with Ananias and Sapphira. So if you like, you get rid of the versification and the chapters and the headings, which most of church history, they didn't have those. We're fortunate. The natural reading is to read them, to keep them together. I think we begin to see what God is trying to show us. You see more clearly how this is one unit. On the one hand, we see how a gospel-shaped community functions, Acts 4. On the other hand, we see how self-centeredness threatens the community, Acts 5. On the one hand, we see the importance of commitment to the gospel in the local church, Acts 4. On the other hand, we see what it looks like to lack integrity. And what are they doing? They're kind of hedging their bets, Acts 5. On the one hand, we see what it looks like to be of one heart with the church, Acts 4. And on the other hand, we see the actions of a a corrupt heart. So, I'm going to approach this passage by reversing the order of the stories from how they're presented to you. I'm purposeful in that. And I'm going to first, so I'm going to first look at Ananias and Sapphira, and then we'll contrast that story with, with Barnabas. So here's the quick restatement of Acts 5, verses 1 to 11. We have this married couple, right? They're married, Ananias, Sapphira, who appear to be, like I said, members of a local church. Um, they owned a piece of property, so which says they had some wealth on some level, and they sold it. So far, so good. They took part of the proceeds to the local church. All right, now let me pause for a moment. If one of you all sold your house or your property, and you came to me like, Pastor, I'm giving 50%, 50 to the church. We're, we're going to rejoice at God's provision, right? We're going to be like, hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God, he provides. So at first blush, this passage appears to be, there appears to be more than what we initially see. Hence, the end result is perplexing. So I'm going to slow down and reflect on God's word and see that there is more than what first meets the eye. It seems clear that Ananias and Sapphira entered into an agreement with the church, but they didn't follow through on their word. 
And so this passage actually warns us of the potential deceitfulness of the heart. Here, here's what I mean. There are two key phrases that help us understand the deeper concerns of Ananias and Sapphira. Look again at Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. Peter identifies the problem right away. Not the problem we tangibly see, but the problems we do not see. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. We can see there was some type of agreement going on. There was an initial agreement between the church and Ananias and Sapphira. Then he continues, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? What Peter is addressing is a lack of integrity and deceit on the part of Ananias. We read of a, of a similar story in the Old Testament. Um, I think this story helps us to understand what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. It, it's from Joshua 7 in the story of Achan. If you don't know the story, I'm just going to try to summarize kind of what's going on there. I won't get into all the details. Uh, Achan stole money and clothing from the, from the enemy after Israel defeated Jericho in battle. Uh, so God had told Israel, hey guys, guess what? Uh, you're going into battle. You're going to win. Just so you know, <laughs> you're going to win. I'm going to make sure you win. I'm sovereign. Uh, one thing though, don't plunder the people. Don't take their stuff. Just leave it alone. Okay, we good? You're going to win. Just follow through on that agreement. Achan did not listen. In secret, he took what he stole. So Achan's like, hey, got some gold, got some nice clothing. I'm going to take that, take it to his tent, buried it in the ground underneath his tent. Now here's the connection that I find absolutely helpful and fascinating. The Greek verb used to describe the actions of Ananias and Sapphira, this is this language, he kept back, it's describing something he's doing, he kept back money. This word is also used to describe Achan's actions from the Greek Old Testament, a word that is not used very often in our scriptures. Achan didn't just keep it back for himself, he misappropriated or embezzled items for himself. Achan allowed his deceitful heart to control his secret actions. But Achan could not keep his secret from God. In both situations, we see what hypocrisy looks like. We see it at work in Israel, and we see it in the church. I'm going to say this with the strongest of terms. God hates hypocrisy. God hates hypocrisy. Hypocrisy can take on many forms. Hypocrisy is claiming to have specific moral standards, but you refuse to live by your own moral standards. Hypocrisy can be putting on a facade for the world to see, but in private you're somebody else. You betray the morals you speak to everyone else about, and you behave differently in private than you do publicly. 
Achan, along with Ananias and Sapphira, played the game of letting off the pretense that they followed the standards of the community. But guess what? They didn't. They didn't. Hypocrisy. This is also very fascinating, right? Let's take the two stories. I was thinking about this yesterday. In Joshua 7, what, what do we see leading up to? God is, God is taking his people into the promised land. He's on the move. He's fulfilling his promise. But what happened in the midst of all that? We got Achan. What do we see in Acts? God is building his church. The kingdom of God is advancing as the word of God is preached. And then what do we have here in Acts 5? More hypocrisy. You know, this is truly a, a heart check passage for us. It is. And it's okay to lean into that and say, check my heart this morning. I'm checking my heart this morning. I've been checking my heart all week. It's a heart check passage for several reasons. One, we are called by God to live a holy life, right? Which means we need to do everything we can to put away hypocrisy. Second, and there are, there are endless stories of people who have left the church, who are disgruntled with Christianity because they have seen hypocrisy in the church. Now, I say this with sadness. But if I had a nickel for every time I heard about a pastor say, you know, don't commit adultery. And then sometime later, guess what he's doing? He committed adultery. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that story, I'd be a rich man. And this saddens me. Listen, I understand the realities of remaining sin and the grace needed for an individual to overcome sin, but those realities do not excuse a person from living a double life. I'm not trying to dog the church here. Don't hear me say that. I'm not dogging the church. I love the church. I pour my life out for the church. I'm simply pointing out the obvious so that we can be the church. The actions of Ananias and Sapphira was an act of hypocrisy, not because of what they did or did not give, but because of what they agreed to give and then chose not to give. They told the church, hey, we see God moving. We're in on this. We're in on this. Our heart is for this. We are so in on this that we're going to sell our 20 acres of land, and we're giving every dime to the church. And they told everyone. They sent an email, put it on the blogosphere, did a podcast. It's God is my witness. This is what we're going to do. The problem Ananias and Sapphira ran into, God was their witness. happened is that they ultimately lied and their actions did reflect their heart. It reflected their heart. You know, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize the struggles in my heart, the sin that comes from my heart, my own issues. They're all a matter of the heart. The same is for you. Your heart is precious and fragile. Your heart reveals what you desire and what you love. The heart is the source of how we speak to one another. Uh, this is really important for us to catch, I think. Uh, 
Peter highlighted as the root problem with Ananias and Sapphira. And I think we need to realize it's the root problem for us as well. Everything you do is connected to your heart. Your principles are connected to your heart. How you respond to criticism or encouragement is connected to your heart. How you use your time and money. Guess what? Guess where it's connected to? What's going on right here in your heart? Therefore, it is imperative that we do everything we can to cultivate a heart that is informed and shaped by God's word and is attentive to the Holy Spirit. Which is also how we keep ourselves from living, what, hypocritical lives. Why is it imperative or important to protect your heart with the truth of God's word? These three verses make it clear. Satan is relentless to sow lies in your heart. Think about this. We can go all the way back to the garden, right? God created the world, got this garden, we got Adam and Eve. It's wonderful, things are going great. And what happens? We got a serpent. What's he speaking lies? Hey, did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Lies began to cast doubt in the heart of Eve and then Adam. And so Satan is relentless to sow lies in your heart. Satan wants you to lie to God. Lies are first expressed in the heart and then eventually manifest with action. So watching over your heart is critical. Concerning matters of the heart, we read these passages from Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And then again in Proverbs, next chapter, keep your heart again with all vigilance. With all vigilance, that means go after it. Be relentless to protect your heart. Don't be passive. Do not be passive in protecting your heart from the lies of Satan. For from it flows the springs of life. And go to the Gospel of Matthew. These are just a few. From out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, if you haven't read um, The Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis... I don't know if you've heard of that. You should. I, I commend that to you. C.S. Lewis creatively shows us a myriad of ways in which the devil tries to get people to believe lies. When you believe lies, you're not believing, obviously, the truth. And then it should go without saying that your heart is prone to deceiving others and your, and your life proves to be hypocritical. So we need to protect our heart from the lies of Satan because if we don't, we ultimately lie to God. Again, look at the question Peter asked and then the rejoining statement that he makes. It's so clear. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Dot, dot, dot. Next verse. You have not lied to man, but to God. And here's the truth. Um, I'm going to give it to you straight because I care for your soul. We all can be like Ananias and Sapphira. When I say we, I include me. I'm not going to sugarcoat it because I, I, I genuinely care for you. Your deceitful heart 
And hypocrisy is something you battle every single day. You tell God you will do something, but when your feet are put against the fire, you just can't quite do it all or you don't want to do it at all. You try to justify actions with lies. You don't need to raise your hand, I'll do it. How many of you have justified your actions with lies? So just being honest here, part of doing a heart check is just putting all the cards on the table and being honest. So in light of everything I've said, I do want to ask the question, why is this story here? Why is it here? Is this story here to condemn us? I don't think so. God will not let his sons and daughters exist in a state of condemnation, and no Christian should ever feel condemned. Romans 8.1 is a promise you can bank on, especially when we, we, we bump up against passages like this. There is therefore now, there is therefore now, right now, where you sit, where I stand, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. But here are a couple reasons, a couple responses why I think this story is here, not to condemn. First, the story exists so that we would have a holy fear of God, a reverential fear of the power of God. After Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, it says, a great fear came upon all who heard it. Same phrase is repeated in, in verse 11. God is not a mean overlord who is looking down to smite you because of your sin. I grew up that way. Do something wrong, here comes the hammer. That is not the God of the Bible for sons and daughters who are in Christ, period. But he is a God who deserves your respect because he is sovereign and all-powerful. We see that when he took the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. Look, our, our, our buddy Jesus, Christian culture, does not like this passage because they can't get their mind around a God who is just. All we hear is that God is love with no understanding of sin and judgment. Now, God is all-loving. God is love. But he's also just. The story of Ananias and Sapphira should be sobering for you as it is for me, hopefully. It should cause you to reflect and just simply ask the question, am I holding anything back from God? Am I? The story is here to also show us the importance of living transparent lives. Yes, surely, God sees everything. Make no mistake about it. He sees everything. He knows everything. He sees you every sin and still accepts you. But God places his people in local churches. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira, as I've said, were part of this growing movement, this local church. And they were trying to hide things from the local church. God wants every individual in the local church to love each other well, 
to be open and honest about sin and failures, to realize the church is a hospital for the hurting and not a haven for the self-righteous. Even in our Christian, our, our community groups, excuse me, I prefer this word transparency over accountability. Accountability is fine. I know what they mean. I'd much rather lean into being transparent, to walk with one another, care for one another. That perpetual sin won't go away. Good. How can we enter into that space and care for you, brother and sister? Parenting issues? Well, let's enter into that space and care for parents. Let's live transparent lives so we can genuinely care for one another. Ananias and Sapphira were not transparent. Here's one more lesson we can learn from Ananias and Sapphira. If our hearts are like Ananias and Sapphira, what prevents God from causing us to drop dead on the ground? Right? If I'm making that claim, which I think is true, why, why am I not going to drop dead on the ground right now? Another reason why this story is here is because we can see the mercy of God in our lives. It is because the mercy of God, we do not drop dead on the ground. The mercy of God is this. We deserve punishment and death because of our sin, but God withholds the punishment we deserve. Christian, it is solely the mercy of God that you are able to get up this morning. It was the mercy of God in which you were able to come to church this morning. I know the story of Ananias and Sapphira is convicting, and rightfully so. So I want you to hear these, these sweet words from 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon. God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. Think of it like this. A way to combat the lies of Satan, which is what we're seeing in our text, is to lean in and to remember the mercy of God in your life. God is merciful. Why would I hide that? Did Ananias and Sapphira deserve to die? Yes. Yeah. Do we? Yeah, you bet. We deserve the same fate. Why did God execute justice on them and not on you and me? I don't know. I don't. But what I do know is that believing in God's mercy can keep your heart from becoming like the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. God's mercy is unlimited. God's mercy is overwhelming. It is the mercy of God where we see the beauty of the gospel. As I've already said, you deserve judgment and wrath from a holy God because of your sin. But out of love and mercy, God executes justice on his one and only son. The justice you deserve is on Jesus. And because of faith in Jesus, your sin, your hypocrisy past, present, and future, has been atoned for. It has been nailed to the cross along with your Savior. We're going to sing these lyrics in a little bit. And I was very intentional, and, and Ryan was excited to sing it in light of what I was preaching this morning. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. 
our sins, they are many. They are many, friends. But his mercy is more. If you allow the gospel to inform your understanding of the mercy of God over your sin, then the story of Ananias and Sapphira, it seems less bizarre, right? We're kind of getting underneath what we initially perceive. We kind of get into the weeds. And we're like, ah, oh yeah, here's what's going on. We, we may not be able to answer all the questions, but we can know that God is just. He is just, but he's also merciful. I said at the beginning of the sermon that there are two stories that we need to talk about. Two stories that are contrasted with one another. If the first sermon is, don't be like Ananias and Sapphira, then this second half, or not half, but next few minutes should be titled, Be Like Barnabas. Be like Barnabas. Once again, in the book of Acts, we see what biblical community looks like. Ananias and Sapphira shows us what it doesn't look like, but Barnabas shows us what it does look like. The focus on community from two weeks ago overflows into this text. Remember, two weeks ago, I emphasized the unity that comes from corporate prayer. When we gather together, we pray together as a church family. Now in Acts 4.32, we read that the early church was of one mind and one heart. The community is describing as having all things in common, which is the opposite of what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. So what is going on here? Did the early church like divest everything and put it into the middle and then everyone took what was needed? Well, yes and no. John Calvin insists the goods were not divided up equally, but a careful distribution was made so that no one was oppressed by poverty. The end goal of all this is to make sure no one in the church was living in poverty. Keeping in mind the vast differences between the economic structures of the 1st and 21st century, some people seem to undergo a major divestment of their property. Still, we see others keep their homes, their money, and their material objects all for kingdom purposes. Everyone divested what God had directed them to do. Not everyone put everything into the middle, but God the Holy Spirit was directing individuals according to his purposes. And once again, we can learn and apply several principles from the early church. First, we read that the early church lived in the power of the resurrection, and as a result, they were filled with grace. Here's verse 33. Ananias and Sapphira, in the power of their own wisdom, could not understand the depths of God's grace. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection. They're basically saying, look what Jesus has done. Look what he's done. They were preaching. And great grace was upon them all. So the church community was obsessed with the resurrected Christ, and they abounded in the grace that God offered. Also, the early church was not a mere humanitarian community where the focus was on just charity. We're just going to do charity work. No. All their actions were an outworking of the gospel. In other words, rightly understanding how to care for the needs of others. Specifically, uprooting poverty was rooted in Jesus. It was rooted in Christ. So verses 32 to 35 lead us to the example of Barnabas. In just a few moments on this 
individual, then I'm not going to give him the time he deserves this morning. Barnabas sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Same, same language we read about Ananias and Sapphira. Laid it at the apostles' feet. Unlike Ananias and Sapphira, Barnabas took all the proceeds of his property and gave it to the apostles. More to the point, he gave everything that he said he would give and did not turn back. He didn't care about perception. He just wanted to serve the church and advance the kingdom of God. Barnabas shows up many times in the New Testament. His name, as indicated in this particular text, means son of encouragement, verse 36. The mention of his nickname, I think, I think Luke who wrote this was very intentional about saying he's the son of encouragement. So the mention of this nickname tells us something about the heart of Barnabas. Not only is he going all in by selling his property, taking all the proceeds and giving it to the church, but he is all about upbuilding the church, encouraging you. He's clearly a person who loves God and loves his local community, his local church. Barnabas is an example of the grace of God at work. He rightly fears God, and he understands the grace and mercy of God. It's not a stretch to say we should follow the example of Barnabas as he follows Christ. And I think Luke, the author of Acts, is very intentional to contrast Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira. So when we read about Barnabas, Ananias, and Sapphira, we need to be warned of hypocrisy, yes, and spurred to live in a manner worthy of Christ, and also spurred to be more like Barnabas. So in closing, God's word should cause us, and hopefully it has for you, to consider the state of your heart. Live with reverential fear of the justice of God, to dive into the ocean of mercy, of the mercy of God, and to live consistent with what God is calling us to do. So my friends, that is Ananias and Sapphira in our contrast with Barnabas. It is, I think, a tricky passage but it's one we should heed and realize God has it here for a reason because we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. With that said, remember the mercy of God in your life. I mean, it's truly, he's so merciful and compassionate and kind to his children. And we can lean into that. We can thank God for his mercy.